Welcome to the History of Networking at Network Collective, where we meld with the finest minds in networking. Tonight, we are talking to John Frazier about the history of an edge provider and their internet exchange point and how the concept of a route server was born. So sit back, grab a pile of cookies, and join us as we dig into the deep recesses of the history of networking. Good evening, Donald. No frogs tonight. I think you're looking at the frogs instead of with those your are cats. Those are those cats. Are, those are cats. Okay, yes. cats instead of frogs. And then we got John, who's sitting somewhere in Cary. Morrisville. I mean, we're, we're, we're all like within. Oh, Morrisville. Are you in Morrisville, John? I'm in Morse Cary. Morse Cary. <laughs> <laughs> Caryville. Where, where does John live? Morse Cary. <laughs> Or scary, something like that. And tonight we're going to talk about the history of IXP. So, John, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself first, like where you came from? Not that you were hatched, but. <laughs> oh, gosh. Um, so, I was that guy that got beat up in school because uh, instead of being a jock, I was a nerd. I, I wore that, that, that badge proudly. Uh, I replaced it with my Harley Davidson badge, but um, I was always into stuff that we all hold dear. I, I, I went in the Marine Corps because I had something to prove, um, not only to myself, but to everybody else who basically considered all nerds to be just uh, weaklings. And uh, it went downhill from there. Yeah, pretty much. Uphill. 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 Yeah. uphill. Oh, okay. Okay. Uh, uphill. It's always uphill in the Marine Corps. Uh, <laughs> even when it's downhill, it's uphill. So, so after eating, you know, my fill of crayons um, and learning, um, you know, the Marine Corps version of communications electronics and, and doing a little bit of teaching at uh, Comlex School um, at MCCS, uh, which is the Marine Corps Communications Electronics School is at 29 Palms. Uh, after my Marine Corps career, I uh, fell back on what I knew, what I loved, which was communications electronics. I mean, it was the same thing that I was doing. And eventually, I stood up an internet service provider because I could not find somebody who could provide the service level agreements. Uh, and that, that was a term that did not exist back then. But, but, but they could provide me the service level agreements and the level and quality of service that I personally wanted. And I decided, okay, well, if, if they can't do it better than I think I can do it, then I might as well do it myself. So, so let's back up. So why were you looking for a high LSA service? I mean, was this for a business? Were you running a consulting company? What were you doing that you were concerned about getting good SLAs? Honestly, I was I was just a consumer, but uh, oh, I, I, I so, was. So your internet I, access wasn't fast enough, so you started. No, no. I mean, I mean, fast wasn't fast wasn't even an option back then. I mean, we're talking twenty four hundred baud at the time. Um, you know, um, thirty three six had just hit the market. Fifty six k did not exist uh, unless you had a frac DS one. But uh, it, it, I was doing all of my research online. Um, I, I was using the internet as the internet 
originally had been envisioned, and that was to access information for research. Uh, I'm, I'm not saying that it's being used or abused differently now, but I, I, I literally, I was going out and it was important to me that I'd be able to get to the information that I wanted. And my internet service provider just wasn't reliable at the time. And I thought, you know, if they can get me to pay X amount of dollars per month, and it was, it was pretty hefty. You remember back then? Yeah. Oh yeah. Um, I think I can do it better. So I'm going to stand up my own company. Uh, so that's where Interzone was born out of was I stood up my own company and it, it, it's, it's really kind of comical looking back on it, Russ. I, you know, I, I had a little Linux box and running a Getty and uh, I think I had a Cyclade 16 port um, serial card and a bunch of uh, 33.6 modems, you know, consumer grade 33.6 modems Velcroed to a piece of board on the wall, plugged in, <laughs> and, uh, and and some Ameritech employees uh, in Columbus, Ohio, who were not impressed with me at all because they were having to run all these individual POTS lines into a residential location. And um, apparently I was... I was taking up all of the good pairs that were still left uh, coming down uh, Cleveland Avenue in Columbus, Ohio. So, so you actually set up this bank of modems, consumer grade modems in little plastic boxes, powered them all on and started an ISP. And what type of outside connectivity did you have at that point? Cause you're bringing in serial lines, of course. So you had to have some type of outside connectivity to get people to the internet. So I started with a BRI, believe it or not. So, you know, I had, I had 128 kbits to the global internet uh, via PSI net. Um, and I still remember to this day, I was, uh, I was swipped um, uh, slash 24 from, from PSI net uh, AS174. Uh, and uh, the 24 that I had was 38.216.16 dot zero slash 24. <laughs> I, I, I will never ever forget that particular slash 24 in, in my lifetime because it was the first address space that I ever personally managed. Um, so I mean, that was my outside connect connectivity was this BRI. Uh, but I was still, you know, I, I only had you know, I, I think I had, uh, I had 16 ports. I think I only had 10 modems. Um, so you uh, couldn't eat the slash 24 anyway. So you only had well, there's no, there's no way I could eat the slash 24. Plus I, I was grossly undersubscribed. Most ISPs were way, way, way oversubscribed, like 10 to one at the time. And I was grossly undersubscribed. And, you know, when I found out, okay, well, I've got some guys that, or, or some customers that, you know, they go out and they're downloading a lot of, of um, 
digital content, uh, say photos or they're downloading zip files, things like that. They were actually using it, but overwhelmingly, most people were out there just browsing websites and, and we, we know that, you know, that's bursty traffic. That's the reason most of the ISPs at the time were oversubscribing um, because they could get away with it. It's, it's the law of averages. So you only had 10 people dialing in at once if you only had 10. So how many customers did you actually have if you only had 10 serial ports? Um, 10 when I was, when I was first starting out, I think I had about, 75 customers, something like that. that that's back when, uh, when I was still literally getting my feet wet. Um, and, you know, the internet was so very, very young. Um, but eventually I, I decided, okay, well, uh, you know, dial-up is fun. It's, it's cool. Everybody needs it. But everybody likes to have their hand held, especially back then, uh, you know, it was not trivial. You had to teach people how to, or, or even install for them, trumpet, windsock, things like that. And, you know, Donald will laugh at this because I do this for a living now, but I did not want to hold people's hands all day long <laughs> doing support. You know, I just wanted them to be able to stand on their own two feet. And it, you know, you know the um, the profit per headache uh, margin was was pretty low. Um, so I, can you I actually just, get a number there? I mean, oh, <laughs> <laughs> that was a forehead ache. <laughs> so I decided, uh, you know, I'm obviously there's I've got eyeball customers. There there are people out there that have content, and I rather service the people that are that are providing content than you know than the the eyeballs and, and maybe not rather but i but i want them as my primary customers the reason being the, the folks that were providing content you know they knew what was going on they they set their server up and they had the content on the server but the server overwhelmingly you know it had a 10 or 100 megabit connection in, in the early days into my infrastructure they could run their own OS. All I had to do was provide them IP connectivity and transport for that IP connectivity. And they weren't a headache. And I could charge them a lot more money because back in the day, and, and I, I'm, I'm almost ashamed to say this, but, you know, I stood up Interzone officially in 1997. We incorporated in 1997, but I started Interzone in late 1995. In 2000, as late as 2005, I was charging a buck, a k-bit, a second average. So for DS1, you were going to pay, you know, if you kept a DS1 full, you were going to pay me 1500 bucks a month. <laughs> Can you imagine paying that much right now for 1.5 megabits <laughs> but, but, but that was considered a lot of bandwidth back then so but you're still in your residential neighborhood doing this you're actually bringing in dmarks and having people drop 1.5 meg links uh i i got a ds1 in in the residential and then eventually um 
because it was costing me so much and, and my DS1s were being terminated from my house to downtown Columbus, Ohio on 5th Street to ICG, who was one of the uh, ILEX. Um, I, I was down there one day, we were troubleshooting something and I, I walked into this room and lo and behold, there's these cabinets and they were obviously in the ICG's cabinets. And I asked them, I said, who is this? And they said, oh, well, you know, we rent out space down here and it's a whole lot cheaper. You still have to pay your port charge, but you don't pay the distance for, um, you know, the DS1 or the DS3 or whatever. And I jumped all over that. I, I went down to Graybar and I bought, I think I bought three um, 19 inch wide by six, six and a half, seven feet tall big blue cabinets and uh, I signed the lease that day for three cabinets worth of space and power. <laughs> the first I, colo, no. <laughs> yeah, literally that was that, that was my first colo was down there. <laughs> and it, it just it, it it went from there. Um of course I had all the stuff at the house that I had to get trans transferred into there and that's when I, I went over to a PRI. Um, not for interconnect to the internet, but a PRI for interconnect to the pot system. And actually I had to spend some money and get a modem bank that could terminate a PRI versus pots lines. And, uh, so I, I, I went that direction and, and got the PRI and, and now I've got not only my very small, I mean, we're talking, I'm, I'm taking up. I don't know, four or five RU with my entire enterprise. And I've got three cabinets worth of space <laughs> and, and, and 15 amps of power per cabinet. So now it was like, okay, well, who else wants to come live in John's space down here at ICG? So, so, but originally these customers that were content providers, you were actually giving them space on your Linux servers in your house. No, 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 no. No, they no, no, were just no. They, they, so no, I, I, no, I never served content out of the house. It was just in the back of my mind. It's like these are the customers that I want. Ah, I, 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 I have to, I have to move away from servicing just residential and, and get into the servicing business, the servicing folks that are that are content providers. And, and, and going to a colo is the way to do that, pretty much. I mean, because oh, definitely, yeah. And this is where, you know, the gear started turning in my head because there were other folks that were in the same colo that were servicing residential customers. And the residential customers were wanting to play games that were um, round trip time and jitter sensitive. And our handoff to each other was at the ADS in Chicago. So it was, <laughs> it was a long round trip time. You know, we're talking, you know, it was already 30 to 60 milliseconds just because of, of serial delay because they were on the modem. And, and now I've got a DS3 to ADS. Actually, I've got a DS3 into, um, ICG and and then from there a, another DS3 into AADS that would added another 15 to 30 milliseconds just depending on you know how good things were acting 
and it, it was it was brutal. And we started talking to each other because, you know, this is back in the day when we're all just trying to to tread water and, and figure out what this thing, the Internet was. And, and most of us were teaching ourselves there was no such thing as actually going to college to learn about the Internet. We were inventing it at the time. So late night, you run into, <coughs> excuse me, um, all of your peers, uh, peers being people that were doing the same exact thing that you were, that they had their customer base, you had yours. There was room for everybody to have customers. So, you know, we, we weren't um, predatory on each other. And, and we run into each other and compare notes. And it's like, hey, you know, why are we paying all this backhaul cost to get into AADS? And why are we paying port charges at AADS when we we need to exchange traffic with ourselves? And we can we can get a better experience for our customers. And we can save ourselves some money. Yeah, because I'm sure you were paying a lot for those back calls to Chicago. Oh, it was it was insane. I I am. So, so, so tell me, you were you were actually making money even with the back calls? <laughs> I was, but not enough money to like pay yourself. It was at the time. It was still this is a hobby that's paying for itself and barely paying for Taco Bell. Right. That's it sad. Was, Taco Bell? Yeah. Sorry. Or even, I mean, you know, if if I was lucky, I could buy White Castle. Oh, there you go. (laughs) But, I mean, it wasn't wasn't something that you live off of. You weren't going to pay your house payment with this. And, uh, you know, so I got a couple of, of... um, little mini towers in, in a couple of my cabinets and customers that were, you know, using bandwidth. I, I you know, my, the first customer I stood up and lo and behold, you know, he had a 10 meg connection because that's what he had in in his box and he was doing four and a half megabits. Well, if you're familiar with 10 megabits Ethernet, he had that thing saturated. Yeah, that's pretty much what you can get he, out of a 10 megabit. He was, he was kicking butt and taking names, and I was making $4,500 a month off of this guy and bandwidth alone. And, and now things started looking better. And now it, it became apparent that, hey, I can start buying infrastructure and and looking towards my dream of making things easier for people that are locally and my ultimate goal of making things easier and much more profitable for me retiring which never happened yeah <laughs> i tell you what you know i it, if i if i retired i would still be showing up someplace and, and haunting it just cause I'd be bored. But, uh, um, is, is that true? Donald, by the way, Donald works at the same place that works at Cumulus with uh, John. So we can ask Donald how, how, whether or not John's bored all the time. I don't think he's bored there. No, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not bored there, but if I was retired, I would be. <laughs> Maybe we let you come work then. Yeah, exactly. 
you know, I, I know John will let me come in. Uh, our boss is, is named John. He, I know he'd let me come in even if I wasn't an employee and and <laughs> and, and do stuff. But <laughs> the story but, I mean, of most network engineers' lives: if we retired, we'd be bored, and we'd still find a place to work. <laughs> I, I tell you what: when my my grandfather retired when he was about my age, and I remember him telling me when he got a part-time job after the fact that's like, that's like grandpa, why did you get another job? And he said, I was bored. You know, I was bored. I had to have something to do. And I remember being a kid going, Oh, that'll never happen to me. Uh, <laughs> no, he was right. I understand now. Yeah. But you know, so once the money started coming in from having customers that were buying bandwidth and power versus buying dial up, um, you know, bandwidth, I could always get more bandwidth. It was easy to get more bandwidth. It was not easy to get more, especially when I was working out of residential, it wasn't easy to add more lines. And so the, the more customers I got, the more oversubscribed I was as far as the number of, of lines that I had for them to dial into. And, you know, customer satisfaction would go down with the number of customers that you, that you gained. Now, I had lots of bandwidth. I wasn't terribly worried about my dial-up customers because I had a PRI coming in. Uh, you know, I had twice as many lines plus that, that than I had residentially. I had much more bandwidth available to me. So I was still way undersubscribed. So I'm looking to sell bandwidth uh, on the cheap. And I was making money on space and power because I had the in that a lot of people didn't know about that. Hey, you can actually co-locate at the phone company and, <laughs> and, and not have to pay for backhaul circuits. So that's where the CMHIX came out of, uh, you know, AADS existed. We had these commercial exchanges, but it cost a lot of money to, to land at AADS. Not, not only did I, the, the smallest circuit you could get into AADS was a DS3. And then, the, you know, the, 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 the loop cost from Columbus, Ohio to Chicago, Illinois to AADS, which was the closest made or may like that I could land at was astronomical. Um, you know, it, it, it was almost $10,000 a month just for the port charge and the loop. So what's interesting, though, is that the, the long, things haven't really changed structurally, have they? I mean, power, rack space, and long haul cost. Yeah. Those are the three primary costs. And that's true of every internet yeah. provider today, every yeah. Yeah, the costs are all the same. It's just you know, us, us um, more learned folks. Uh, I will I will use that. Uh, remember, <laughs> you know, back in the day when it was uphill for all the bits, and uh, you know, it, it was it was ice cold in the data center. You know, so we were we were uphill uphill in the snow barefoot. Um, <laughs> Both directions. <laughs> yeah, it, on, on copper instead of fiber. Um, we remember when it cost grossly more than it did now, but it, you still, you've got three commodities, space, yeah. power, bandwidth. Yeah. Um, I, I was, I was lucky enough to come into the game early enough to, to learn the lessons. And 
I had the desire to provide the best of the best. Cause even back then, I mean, today, especially true, but, but, but back then, I, you know, customers would come to me and say, Hey, or potential customers would say, Hey, you know, I can get the same thing that you're claiming to do from, you know, Joe Blow over here. And he's going to charge me less. And I'd look at customers and go, okay, here's the deal. Fast, reliable, cheap, pick any two. Yeah. You know, and that's the way it's still, it's the same today. Yeah. Only, only, only we're much faster. And even the worst of reliable care, you know, the worst reliable of carriers is so much better than what we had available to us at the time. Right. Yeah. But it's, but it's still bandwidth over distance. Yeah. And it's still power and it's still rack space. It's still physical. And, And we've still not figured out how to, you know, break the speed of light. So we still have LFNs. Well, you never know. We could get that quantum entanglement going at a high enough uh, bit pairs that we might be able to solve that problem. But That's not really faster than the speed of light, though, is it? No, it's not really. Yeah, I was going to say. It is, but yep. yeah. And never underestimate the pure, unadulterated bandwidth of a, a Volkswagen bus full with DAT tapes heading east coast to west coast. Yeah, that's, that's more bandwidth than we had available to us back in the day. You it's could still, actually you, still, you could yeah. actually transport more by traveling coast to coast with that tapes than you could by the the total bandwidth available coast to coast to do it electronically. Yeah. That's that's um, Tenenbaum's example. He uses a, a videotapes, back video backup tapes with a station wagon, and it's still true today. If you calculate how many um, SD cards, say 128 gig SD cards, would fit into an overnight box in FedEx. And what is the bandwidth of carrying that amount of data in 24 hours or less? It's still faster than any bandwidth you can buy by oh. a long shot. <laughs> you know, it's, yeah, it's the, the biggest thing is is the the feck on the wire is more reliable than the feck on the highway. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and your jitter is horrible on the highway. Yeah. <laughs> totally horrendous. Latency too is, is much worse. Latency is much worse. Yeah. So, so you're out there, you've got these people, they're buying basically power and space and they're, you've solved the problem of backhaul pretty much, right? For yourself. For, well, I'm still for, paying for at least for a Columbus. Yeah. But I'm, just, I'm, I'm still paying for it though. And that was a problem. Yeah. Yeah. So I had, I had the idea of, Hey, let's stand up this exchange point. And, and initially it was, okay, we need to be able to Columbus to Columbus provider to provider exchange traffic. So I stood up CMHIX and had a, had a, gigabit fabric where you could connect either at gig 100 meg or 10 just based on you know what you had some of the some of the folks were running you know little baby what we would call a soho modem um and all they had left on or or not soho modem soho router all they had left was a single 10 gig port that's all they had spare on the box no problem i'm not going to discriminate 10 megabits, here you go, connect into, the, connect into CMHIX. 
So explain how you did this. So is this in the existing three racks you already had, or did you look colo another rack to start up uh, a separate company? How so this was work? this was in the existing three racks that I had. Um, Interzone, my company, sponsored CMHIX, also my company. <laughs> hey, you know it's easy to give give away to yourself, right? <laughs> and then I, I actually I went to uh, Gray Bar. And I bought the fiber termination tools and a, a friend of mine at Ameritech gave me a big old spool. Ameritech would throw away fiber if it was less than a, than a um, kilometer of fiber left on the spool, they'd throw it away. It wasn't worth them keeping track of. Hey, no problem. Give it to me. I'll keep track of that. <laughs> <laughs> so... I went and got the fiber termination tools and, and taught myself how to terminate fiber and all, all the right tools to, to measure. I eventually got a, a fusion splicer, but I actually spliced fiber the hard way for a while. With, with, a, with a big lighter? No. <laughs> no, no, with two sticks. <laughs> <laughs> so I think you better explain what gray bar is. A lot of people listening to this aren't old enough to know what gray bar is. <laughs> so gray bar was like the candy store for geeks. You know, you could, you so could like buy fries in California now, but even but but even older than that, even like more like Radio Shack back in the day, where it yeah. was, you know, it was actually resistors and transistors and you know, five fifty five timers, you know, uh, plastic uh, packaging and. At Graybar, you could buy 19-inch racks, 21-inch racks. You could buy, um, you know, cable management. You could buy all the tools you needed to terminate Cat5, Cat4, Cat3, whatever. And, you know, fiber was was just now making it into mainstream for Telco. So they had all the tools that, that, that the folks that, that were – contracting out to telcos to do their fiber work um they had all the tools and they had the training and stuff like that so if you were willing to spend the money in it you know in in retrospect it wasn't that much money you could get the tools and it became a whole lot more efficient you know after i had fishel do my first fiber run and you know they charged me more than i paid for my car um, I was like, hey, I think I'm going to go buy the tools and, and get the training to do this on my own because, you know, I already owned the glass. Uh, you know, it, I had the fiber. I bought the ends. They didn't even have to pull it. We did the pull. They charged me this much to terminate these two ends and certify yeah. them. So this is all within the colo, though, right? I mean, you're not pulling underground or anything. This oh, is we, all- we, actually, we actually were. Uh, so so by this time, I, I made friends with somebody at, at ICG and we actually had internet going from this my is something, cat. Something is, this is something else that has never changed about the networking industry is yeah. that it's not just about the technology. It's all about people, you know, <laughs> 90% of everything, <laughs> but go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> so we pulled interduct, um, several runs of interduct. And if you're unfamiliar with interduct, it's about an inch, around and in, in orange or yellow or green, just depending sometimes blue, but not very often we pulled four runs of interduct from one of my cabinets all the way to the back of the ICG building, uh, down on fifth street in Columbus into the, basically a mud room back there. And from that mud room, uh, we had 
surreptitiously um, drilled through the concrete from the basement of the <laughs> of the building next door. <laughs> <laughs> and, it was and, an accident and i don't and, know how it happened <laughs> there was and, just a hole there it must have been a mouse <laughs> it, it, it's perfect it fits our cable went right through it's awesome <laughs> it, 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 well no uh, so i had a four, i have four inch emt coming from the basement of, <laughs> of 240 north fifth street into 226 north fifth street and we knew there were space available in 240 North Fifth Street, and we we could buy space over there for I, I could get an entire I don't know twelve fourteen maybe two thousand square feet for what I was paying at ICG for three cabinets, <laughs> right? So so you did your own back haul. <laughs> yeah, so literally, you know, paid for the. Uh, somebody to come in and, and core drill through this concrete. And this was not a trivial thing because these buildings previously had been a paper mill. So the floors were poured concrete that were a foot and a half thick with particulate in them. We're, to, we're talking like a five hour job to, to drill a four inch hole through this actually four and like a quarter inch because we were running four inch EMT. So I've, I've now got four inch EMT getting down into the basement of 240 North, or I'm sorry, uh, yeah, 240 North 5th Street from 226. And I've got conduit going down into there into a pull box into the basement that comes all the way over to my cabinet that's uh, at ICG. <laughs> so I, I stood up a data center over in 240 and the first thing that I did was interconnect with myself and, you know, make sure, okay, we're good to go and things are working. And then I started selling space over there and then started moving people, literally migrating them from the cabinet over to the new space. So which left you room in that cabinet so that you could actually build this, put this switch in and build like a little exchange point. So, so exactly. So we had, we had a switch down there and I left the original CMHIX switch in the cabinet. And then I had what kind of a switch was that just out of curiosity. Oh, oh gosh. I'm, I'm so embarrassed. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so it was an HP 4,000. Okay. That's okay. I mean, it, it was, not a bad switch. No, no, no. It was, it's fine. It, was it was about a thousand bucks back in the day and you could get gig on it. And that, <laughs> and that was the, but the difference was it was, I forget how many slots it had in it. The slots ran vertical, but um, if you could either get eight ports of Tim 100 or a single port of gig SX uh-huh. Or, or, or gig LX. So, you know, I burnt a slot in this switch to do a gig LX because I didn't know anything. I, I didn't realize, well, hell, John, you're, you're going less than a kilometer. You could have done this with SX. But anyway, I, I burnt an LX port to go next door because that was a long distance to me um, and stood up another 4,000 next door. And now, hey, we've got more ports and we're still on the same layer two fabric. Everything's good to go. I mean, CMHIX was, uh, 
was the most basic of exchanges down at the, at the physical layer. At the physical layer, there you know, it, either you ran fiber to me and plugged in, or you ran copper to me and plugged in, or I ran fiber between the you know individual pops of CMHIX. So we had the one in 226, we had the one in 240, both of them HP 4000s interconnected by, by gigabit. It, it was as simple as could be. And, and then layer three on top of that, we were running a, a dress space that, um, that I still have to this day. I'm not going to announce it because uh, I, I know Aaron will try to come take it from me, but it was given to <laughs> It was given to me by the IANA just for the if ask. If it's a slash 24, you could have bought that house with it, John. Yeah, exactly. It, it, it is. I've got a slash 24 of, IP, <laughs> wow. of, of IPv4 space that was given to me for the asking from the IANA. And sometime back in the late 90s or mid 90s, Aaron wanted to uh, do me a favor and operate my inadder.arpa for me. And I was like, no, I don't think so. I, I'm, 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 per I'm perfectly competent in doing, doing it myself. And I didn't fall victim to what a lot of other people did, which was in order for Aaron to do that for you, you had to, you know, sign over some rights and guess what? This address space that Aaron or that the INA had given to you that, that for the asking all of a sudden Aaron was charging you for every year. Yeah, of course. And eventually they want it back because you're not big enough to own it. Yep. Uh, well, but it, anyway, so that's that's where the physical came from for CMHIX. And I, I think one of, the, one of the things that is most interesting about it was the protocols involved. And, it, you know, it was fun doing all the physical and I, I, I truly enjoyed learning how to terminate fiber and, and, you know, cleave and polish and put the connector on and, and all of a sudden, okay, well, you know, crap, I've got 30 DB of loss, cut that off. That just cost me $75. Let's cleave polish again. You know, I, I don't understand it. I've cut this fiber three times and it's still too short um, type situation. But uh, honestly, the, uh, the most fun part about it was the routing behind it. And so yeah, let's talk about that because that's that's kind of the interesting point where we get into the route server and the origin of the route server, or at least your first experience, your first playing around with it. And so, talk to us about like the routing behind it. What were you doing? So we were speaking BGP, um, like all big boys do, and it w it was golden initially. You know, when we had five or six peers and. It was easy enough that, okay, well, we're just all going to have individual peering sessions amongst ourselves. And we're, we were all peering using this 24. So we, we all had a slash 24 address, you know, so I was dot one because, you know, I'm number one. Um, <laughs> but I was dot one. Uh, I think, uh, Gary and Ignostus from complete website management was dot two. Um, Kyle Bacon, shout out, shout out to Kyle. Uh, Kyle is now with uh, crap who bought PSI net and, uh, and fiber network solutions. Uh, they're, they're pretty big now. Anyway, Kyle, you'll, you, you can comment 
below down there. Um, <laughs> anyway, so Fiber Network Solutions was was dot three, but it was easy for us to peer with each other. There weren't that many peers, so we all had individual peering stanzas uh, for each other. You know, it was just a one to one peering relationship, and, and that was cool um, until the word got out that hey, I get free bandwidth cross cross town. You know, this crazy guy, John, is willing to give me space in his data center for a router and give me an interconnect into this exchange point. And all I've got to do is promise to peer bilaterally or multilaterally with everybody else who signs this multilateral non-settlement peering agreement. Uh, and the, uh, the there are two operative words there. Number one, multilaterally, meaning everybody else that's part of this agreement has to peer with everybody else, has to peer with everybody else. And number two, non-settlement, because back in the day, that's where people were making money hand over fist was with paid peering. Which means you suddenly got into a full mesh of BGP speakers very quickly. Oh, and yeah. A lot of BGP speakers. Yes. And, and it became a pain in the butt. And I, I started thinking, okay, well, you know, how did we solve this problem in the data center, you know, for ourselves? Well, we solved it with IBGP and, and route servers. So I didn't have to have a full mesh. Well, well, we what? actually solved it that way for transit providers first, but you weren't a transit provider. So you yeah. were exchange point. So you were EBGP. Yeah. So it's like, well, well, we can do this with EBGP as well, but I, but I've got to cheat. So it started out, you know, we were using my ASN uh, and it was 13,944 back in the day on the exchange point and everybody was peering with 13,944 on the exchange point on, on the route servers. Um, and these were little cobalt, cobalt micro, uh, if you remember the the Cobalt web servers, the little mm-hmm. one one U, well, I, mm-hmm. I had a couple of Cobalt micro servers that a customer had given up on because he just couldn't operate them or they didn't operate the way he wanted to. I loaded a regular Linux distro on it and put Quagga on them. Um, and it, they were just BGP speakers now. So I, these became our route servers and they were running under my ASN to start with because nobody wanted to peer with a private ASN on the global internet and that didn't scale because number one, it kind of took me out of the mix. Um, you were also running next top to the origin, right? You weren't changing your next top. Ex- exactly. So we're beating the snot out of these poor little cobalt microbes. And I was like, well, this, this is not going to work. And I started looking through the code and uh, Don can tell you from today that it's dangerous when John starts looking through the code, it was even more dangerous <laughs> back then. But I started looking through the code and it's like, okay, well, here's the attributes of a, of a BGP and a LRI. You know, we, we've got the autonomous system. We've got the actual prefix. We've got the next hop. And, I didn't even think about the med. That's the only three that I was looking at was next top ASN and the NLRI. And it's like, well, if only I could make it so that they could peer with, you know, this, whatever ASN over here, we can, we can use a private ASN. And when I, from these, from this route server, 
showed somebody an NLRI, I never included my own ASN and I didn't change the next hop. So if I, if I acted like it was IBGP, only it's EBGP with, with some relaxed rules, it'd be a perfect world. So I, I sat down, you know, as smart as I was back then, uh, I couldn't spell C, um, let alone program, <laughs> program in it. But I managed to hack my way through the BGPD daemon in Quagga and got it to compile and got it to behave the way that I wanted to after several days, maybe a week or so of attempting. Um, it took it took several days to even get it to compile because I was so terrible. You know, I, I was trying to learn to code by example and just reading the code that was there and changing it and and kind of learning. Okay, well, you can't do that, can't do that. But finally, got it to where I could add a flag in. I forget, I forget which flag I stole, but there was already a Boolean option somewhere within Quagga BGPD on a per peer basis, there was a Boolean and I forget which one, but it wasn't one that I was going to use. And I literally, I stole it so that, so that we could use this Boolean to turn on, on or off my functionality. And my functionality was transparent AS. And, and the secondary was transparent next top. And uh, Don can probably speak to this. I think now it's called attribute unchanged AS and attribute unchanged next top. I think you're right. I think that's right. Yeah. But I called it transparent hyphen AS. And, and it, so it was like neighbor, blah, 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 space, transparent hyphen AS, and then neighbor, blah, 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 transparent hyphen next top. And those two Booleans would cause NLRIs going to the neighbor to not be prepended with my ASN. And we would leave the next top the same. And Lo and behold, the route server for CMHIX was born, um, and it lived that way for several years. Um, and I, I submitted this change or you know, this diff, and, and it said somebody actually had to teach me how to use diff so I could could create a patch um, <laughs> to submit to quite uh, to actually this was back in Zebra, so so I could submit a a patch to, to the zebra group because I, I, I was talking on the mailing list about what I'd done and they're like, Hey, this is pretty cool. Can you, can you give us a diff? I don't know what a diff is. Can you teach me how to do it? They taught me how to do it. I submitted this diff and it, it was actually accepted into the zebra, which went into Quagga, which is now an FR. And thankfully it's, it's much more mature than it was then. I, and you know, people that actually knew how to program almost immediately, took my terrible spaghetti code and turned it into something of, of art, but it was, it, it worked for us and it allowed us to then peer with the route servers and have a single peering session, have a single policy, but that, that peering session appeared to be multiple peering sessions. So whoever was at the route server and, and, and appearing at the route server in the multilateral peering agreement, their ASN was the first ASN that I saw in, in the AS path. Their next top, you know, we, we're all on the same 24, their next top. So I'm no longer beating the snot out of these poor little cobalt micro boxes. Um, we were now port to port, you know, going direct to the pier. Right. 
And that's uh, that's the story of of how John became transit free at Interzone. <laughs> so, so a quick question: Did uh, where did uh, the this idea go from there? Were you the first one to implement the idea? I don't think I was the first to implement it. Um, I, I I wasn't the tenth. I don't know honestly. Um, Bill Woodcock is probably the, the the best person that we could ask to find out, you know, whether or not I was the first um, non-commercial um, because I, I CMHIX never had a paying customer. I was always able to convince people to come in and, and take advantage of the free space and power. So I'm not going to charge you as long as you are part of the multilateral peering agreement. Um, you know, I was the correct dealer of bandwidth. Um, it, I, I know that Kansas city exchange used the same zebra code. Um, and they used a lot of the templating that I did for CMHIX. I know that for a fact that they used my multilateral peering agreement. Um, there were several exchange points that stood up for a while. Some of them lasted, some of them didn't, uh, I don't think we were the first, though. I think we were the first to successfully pull it off, if that makes sense. So what year was this, do you think? Uh, I stood CMHIX up in 2001. Okay. I, think, I believe it was 2001. Okay. The, because there's an experimental RFC, 1863, from 95, that describes the concept of a route server but I don't know if it was actually implemented. It's experimental, which means it was never standardized, which means there were not never two interoperating implementations. Yeah. And, and again, this will, this will show just how green I was. I didn't even know what an RFC was when I was <laughs> doing this stuff. I had no clue, no concept. And even if I did, I probably was so, immature at the time that I wouldn't have paid attention to it. Well, the funny thing is in 1863, there's a whole new set of attributes that are pushed in to prevent loops, which aren't needed in EBGP. So that's pretty interesting. Um, and by the way, this was obsoleted by 4223, which was in 2013. Wow. Or two, I'm sorry, 2000, 2005 was okay. originally 2005. So that's several years after you were doing it then that it sounds to me like 1863 was way, way, way older. And it was um, reclassified to historic in 2005. So was I. And, yeah, well, <laughs> aren't we all? So anyway, that's kind of, that's kind of, it was just interesting that I, I actually went and looked up like what the first date was this was mentioned and was just curious. I've and looked, was, I've, I've looked back and I want to find it. And if somebody has got it, I'm sure somebody has got an archive somewhere um, like, like I do it, ever since I switched over to, you know, the Goog for all of my email, I, I've not deleted truly an email for life, but so hopefully somebody's got this. I, I would have. love, I, I would love, <laughs> I, uh, even, even when I delete it, it goes into an archive somewhere. I could still find it if I needed to, but I, I would love for somebody that was on the zebra mailing list back in the day to send me the email where I sent the patch in. Um, 
I, I can't find it. <laughs> if, if I could, I could tell you the exact date that I did it. And I could tell you all the, all the pains because uh, I, I think Paul Jackma was, was active in zebra as well. And I was talking to hero and, and I talked to a lot of guys on the zebra mailing list and some of them were telling me, Hey, this sounds like a cool idea. And other ones, other ones were going, you know, why on earth would you want to do this? Oh, just cause I'm stupid, you know, just let me go. And, you know, I'll, I'll go off and be stupid, stupid on my own. You don't, you don't have to implement if you don't like it. But. You might, you might talk to Vincent Jardin. He might have archives. Yeah. Ask him. That'd be cool. Yeah. Well, that's really cool, John. So I think that, I mean, is unless there's something else, I think that kind of covers what we were going to talk about. Um, and we're a little over 50 minutes. So I don't know. Um, anything else, Donald, that you want to ask? No, actually, it's kind of cool. It is kind of cool. So, John, do you vlog any place? No, never mind. Do you- <laughs> <laughs> okay. Where can people find you if they want to find you? Let me put it a different way. And they, they, can, they can find me at work uh, <laughs> or, or at home or at Desi's Pub and Grill. <laughs> <laughs> You have a Twitter account. Uh, gosh, I don't. Okay. Are you on LinkedIn? I am on LinkedIn. Oh, see something. There's some way for people. If, to get only, to if only we knew somebody that worked at LinkedIn. Yeah. I know. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us how to actually use it. So, okay. So LinkedIn, so people can look so, you up on LinkedIn. And um, also um, opsec.us, uh, uh, Oscar Papa hyphen. Sierra Echo Charlie, so op us. Marine Corps and, Communications comes to yeah, the fore. <laughs> there, there, there you go. Um, and there, not only will you find that I'm not a very good programmer, but I'm definitely not very good at HTML either. But, uh, <laughs> but my contact information will be there, and, and they can see pictures of back in my glory days as well. Okay, cool. So, Donald. Twitter, you're at E Sharp. Not need no, that's not right. Me not U Sharp. Me not U Sharp. I get you and Yvonne's because they're both sharps mixed up all the time. So I and you don't blog, right, Donald? As no. hard as I've been working on you, you still I, uh, don't blog. it's against the law, I think. It's against the law. Okay. And you can always find me at rule11.tech and come back to the network collective at the network collective dot com to um, find some more great content on the history of networking and check out our membership as well. It's a really cool community. Thanks. And we'll talk to you next time on the history of networking. Mm-hmm.